I was reading the Haftorah today, and something kind of struck me in Isaiah 35, verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And I was thinking about prophecy, what the nature of prophecy is, why we get prophecy, and I was thinking of it in terms of that passage. And by the way, for those of you who will correctly say that's a promise to Israel, let me take you to Isaiah 56, 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. So the Isaiah passage in the Haftorah is actually a promise to Israel. But what I'm suggesting to you is we can be covered by it. So let's talk about prophecy for a minute. Prophecy has three components. And I'm going to talk about it in terms of context, dominion, and morale. So what prophecy does is gives us context. People need context. We need to know where we fit, what our purpose is within society, within life, within the universe. So one of the purposes of scripture in general and prophecy particularly is to give us context. So I've talked about it in terms of Genesis 1 where God says, all right, this is what I made, this is where I put you, this is what I want you to do. Prophecy continues that process. And then dominion, God gave us dominion over the place. And one of the things that you should have noticed as Mike was reading about Moses, God never does anything. What happens is Moses raises his rod. Moses prays. Moses does whatever Moses does. And that's the thing that turns on the plague. And when Moses says, stop, that's what turns it off. Now, don't get me wrong. It's God's power that's doing that. I'm not suggesting that Moses has got that power per se, but God works through people because in the beginning, God gave us dominion over the place. If God had chosen to do something else, there's nothing we could do about it. But the fact that he did choose to do that and the fact that he follows the rules that he himself has made is something we depend on. God is not capricious. He's given us the rules and he himself abides by them. And as I say, if he chose not to, there's nothing we could do about it. But he does choose to do so. So he works through us. And then morale, one of the things that prophecy is for is to encourage us. As it said in Isaiah, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Because as we're in this, we very easily lose focus, lose our courage, and what prophecy does is it keeps us bucked up so that we can do what we need to do. So that's sort of context. So now, what we need to talk about is mysteries and secrets. And you know that those are two different things because they're spelled differently. A mystery and a secret are two different things. 
A secret is something hidden or private. We see secrets all over the place. So, for example, in the Torah, you have secret sins, stuff that's done in secret that nobody sees, and God says he'll take care of those. All sorts of secrets in the Bible. That's different than a mystery. A mystery is a puzzle. I am a great fan of early to mid-20th century British detective fiction. Dorothy Sayers, Agatha Christie, Nero Wolfe, and the idea of a mystery in these stories, this particular genre, is they tell a story, and there are things that are told in the story that if you understand what's going on, you should be able to connect the dots and figure out who done it. And of course, the, the deal is with the detective that's involved, at the end of the story, he himself then will connect all those dots for you, and he'll say, the butler did it, or whoever did it, right? It's a genre. A mystery is a puzzle. So what God does is in prophecy and so forth, he says things that are clues to a mystery. He doesn't solve the mystery for you. He just gives you clues. And of course, the big one, as you all know, is Yeshua himself. It says in Corinthians, for example, that if the powers and principalities had understood that crucifying the Son was going to allow the Gentiles to come in, they never would have done it. In other words, it was a mystery. And as we go back over the scriptures, what we can see now are all the clues to the mystery that leads up to the thing that actually happened, which is the resurrection of Yeshua, which leads to the Gentiles coming in. So mysteries and secrets are different. And so prophecy is hard to understand because prophecy is setting up clues in a mystery. Some of those mysteries have been solved, as in the resurrection of Yeshua. Some of them have not yet. And one of the things that God is dealing with, of course, is he's dealing with the rebellion in heaven. Remember what I just said about Yeshua in the resurrection. The mystery was from the powers and principalities in heaven who are in rebellion because God is conducting a campaign that is going to lead to the salvation, redemption, and healing of the entire earth. And so he tells us the pieces of it, but it's in a mystery and secrets and so forth so that the enemy won't be able to figure it out and react ahead of time. So, for example, the Jews don't see the mystery of the resurrection of Yeshua. They still don't get it. They don't believe that this nice Jewish boy who got himself crucified is, in fact, the Son of God. It's still a mystery to them. They haven't been able to connect the dots, or they don't believe the connecting of the dots that we see. So, let's start with dominion. God does things through people. And I'll read a passage from Amos. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So one of the things about a prophet, one of his jobs is, since humanity has dominion over the place, since everything is information, it was all created with just words, right? What the prophet's job is, is to speak things that God wants spoken because God needs a man to speak them. 
So you have these words that the prophets have said over the centuries, and what they do is they, A, set up the mystery, but they also set in motion things much like Moses sets in motion the plagues when he goes out and says things. So that's what dominion has to do with. And, of course, the prophets say it in riddles and mysteries and so forth. So God's word is out there through a man. It will come to pass because it's God's word spoken by a man, but it's spoken in mysteries and riddles so that the enemy can't figure it out and so that you can't read prophecy and buy Microsoft before it goes to however many dollars a share it is. What I want to do now is I want to talk about context, and here I'm going to be in Daniel. And I was listening to Ron Dart earlier this week, and he's in the book of Revelation. He was talking about the beast that comes out of the sea. And he said, of course, as you all know, what he's doing is he's referring back to Daniel. So what I want to do is go back to Daniel, because Dart said something that was, ah, I hadn't thought of it that way before, and it all falls into the context of what I'm talking about. So I'm going to start off in Daniel 2.29. So this is Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries, by the way, that's the only place mysteries shows up in the Old Testament, is in this part of Daniel. Lots of secrets in the Old Testament, and it shows up three or four times in this passage, but... This is it. The first thing that's going on is Nebuchadnezzar is getting ready to go to bed. And what he's doing is he's wondering, what's going to happen next? So that's the, to you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. So what Daniel is saying is this dream that you have had is given to you by God so that you would know what was going to happen. You were thinking about it before you went to bed. God answered your question. That's what the dream was. Verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel says, God showed me what the mystery is. I'm going to interpret it for you. And this is a message between you and God. I'm just the interpreter here. So now down to verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. As you looked, the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There's the dream. I'm not going to continue reading here, but the thing that Ron Dart said that went dong in my head is this image is made of different components, but it is a single thing. 
It is not four different things. It is one thing with four components. And I had not thought of it that way, and that was what sort of started me on this path. Now, one of the things that you'll notice is it says that its appearance was frightening. Remember, Daniel said at the beginning, this thing was frightening to you. In other words, it's terrible. Notice that it starts off with precious metals and it goes down to less precious metals at the bottom. But notice also that as it goes down, it gets stronger because iron is stronger than gold. Brass is stronger than silver. So it gets harder, stronger, more obdurate as it goes down, even though it becomes less and less fine and refined. But it's all one thing. Just hold that thought for a minute now, and let's go over to Daniel 7. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were storing up the great sea. Typically in Bible exegesis, the sea is representative of the nations. It's also representative of chaos, because remember, everything is brought out of the sea. So either one works there. Verse 3, and four beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold... Another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the root, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And of course, that's what we see in Revelation. Now, one thing I want you to know, two things, several things, four or five things maybe. One of them, of course, is this image is a single thing. It's a unit, even though it's made out of four parts. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what he sees is a statue, an image. So from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, this beautiful, terrifying, but beautiful image is with him as the golden head. He looks at that, and I'm the best it's going to be. As it goes down, it's going to continue, but I'm the best. God sees them as dangerous animals. God's vision that he gives to the prophet is these are four dangerous animals. Nebuchadnezzar's view is this is this big, imposing, fine statue. So that's the first thing I want you to notice is the difference in perspective on how God versus man views these things. Now, Bible scholars pretty much universally agree that the head, the first of the empires, is the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. The second one down is the Persian Empire, the third one down is Greece under Alexander the Great. And the last one is Rome. And the thing about Rome 
Remember I said that it starts off fine and valuable as gold and it winds up base and hard like iron. Rome has never gone away. The Roman Empire fell in something like 700, but then it went to the Holy Roman Empire. Then it went to Napoleon. Then it went to Hitler. Then it went to the Tsars. And by the way, in Russian, the word Tsar is Caesar, as is Kaiser in German. What do you think the Third Reich was? Rome, the Holy Roman Empire, the Third Reich. And if you notice the symbols, the symbol of Rome was an eagle on a staff. Under Napoleon, Napoleon's divisions had a standard with an eagle on top of it looked just like a Roman eagle. Look at the symbols of Nazi Germany. You have this eagle with a swastika in the middle. That looks like a broken cross. The Holy Roman Empire's cross is broken. So the whole point is, the Roman Empire has never gone away. It has just simply moved. Now, one of the things that the United States did when we were formed is People tried to run away from that stuff. That's one of the reasons we came to this country, to get away from the aristocracy, to get away from all of that stuff. We, we were before Napoleon, but you get the idea. What we did, however, is we brought a lot of it with us. If you look at our national buildings in Washington, you've got eagles all over the place. You've got Fascisti, which are the bundles with the axe. You've got all sorts of Roman symbols in our national presence. So we tried to get away from it, but we didn't completely. And now what I'm suggesting to you is Rome is moving over. And what's happening is this Roman system which remember it is a single thing going from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome and it all represents human empires on the earth. It represents human government. Remember again as I was reading the second passage of Daniel we regard them as something glorious something really great that we have built. God regards them as dangerous animals. What was the government that God initially set up in Israel? Judges. And the idea in Israel is, a, theoretically, a government by judges is the freest you can possibly be. Because if you can get along, you never have to deal with the judge. It's only when the two of you can't get along that you've got to go to the judge and he gets involved and so forth. Now, of course, we corrupt that just like we corrupt everything else. But the whole point of the government, if you will, that God set up is it maximizes human liberty. As long as you guys can get along, government's not in your face. And in the United States, for about the first 150 years, we were very much that way. And what we became is the most prosperous and powerful nation on earth with very, very limited government. Our government was set up 
to stay out of your way. In fact, the Constitution is a limitation on government, not a grant of privilege to people. These are the things that the government can't do. Now, of course, they're doing them. So what we tried to do is we tried to get out of this Roman system when we came to the United States. And, of course, the Roman system is following us. And what we're seeing is the ascendance and the assertion of that system. Remember I told you that one of the purposes of prophecy is to give us context and to encourage us. So as we look at what's going on around us, our natural inclination is to have weak knees. As we see this great and terrible beast that is rising around us, our inclination is to have weak hands and feeble knees because this is a great and terrible beast. And what God is saying in prophecy is, yeah, it's a great and terrible beast, but understand you have this rock that is cut without hands that comes down and strikes what? The feet, the bottom, the end of the process. So this rock strikes the feet and breaks up this human government system and restores the government that God intended for humanity to have. That's the point of this prophecy. The goal of the prophecy is to let you know that, yeah, individuals, you may get fed to the lions. I mean, that may happen to you. It's entirely possible. But understand that you are a player in a battle, if you will, that God is using you for, and he will eventually prevail. That's the purpose of all these prophecies. A, they're mysteries, and that's why you get people arguing about who's the Antichrist, who's the beast, who's the false prophet. For a while there, it was looking like Ariel Sharon, because he gave away Gush Katif, and then he had a wound to his head. He had a stroke. So everybody was wondering, is Ariel Sharon going to recover from his stroke? Is he going to be the one? And that's the whole point. It's a mystery. And when it is finally revealed and we finally see what it is, we're going to be able to go back and we're going to be able to look at all the clues, just like the end of an Agatha Christie novel. You're going to be able to go back and say, oh, yeah, the gate was left open. Oh, wow, that's what all that meant. In the meantime, if you want to argue about who the Antichrist is, enjoy yourself. I don't care. I mean, it's great indoor sport, arguing about who all that stuff is. I don't think we're going to know until we know. That's what a mystery is. And, of course, God, being far better at it than Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers, is making sure that we aren't going to be able to figure that thing out until after it is revealed, just like he did with Christ in the crucifixion and the resurrection. It was only when Christ comes up from the grave and, oh, we really screwed up, is what the powers and principalities said. We, whoa, we really blew that one. But they didn't know it until after the trap had been sprung. So as you read prophecy, understand that there are going to be puzzles, mysteries, 
things that you're not going to understand, but take from it passages like this, Isaiah 35. And by the way, they're all over prophecy. We just happen to have read that one today. But as you read these passages that are intended to be encouraging, intended to be comforting, intended to keep you in the game or the fight or whatever you want to call it, take comfort from those passages because God salts them through Scripture. And remember, he's doing several things in prophecy. One is he's getting a man to say things because until a man says it who has dominion and speaks the word of God, things don't happen. It's not that God couldn't, it's just that he doesn't. We depend on the fact that he follows his own rules. So first thing that's happening is he's got stuff that he wants a man to say because it needs to be said in order for the progression to take place. Second thing is it's intended to comfort us, to get us motivated, if you will. And the third thing it's intended to do is confuse the enemy. And I will tell you, if Satan himself can't figure it out, your chances of figuring it out ahead of time are pretty slim. So let's close with Isaiah 35.3 again. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, anybody here have an anxious heart? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And that's the rock that's cut without hands that is going to break the statue at its feet. (laughs) 